Amen. Thank you, worship team. I meant to ask you, Corey, to tell them not to sit down. It's time to stand up. We're going to read from God's Word. My apologies, everyone. We're in Mark chapter 13. We're rounding out the chapter today, and we are at the good part. Are you excited? Are you ready? I can't wait. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. God's holy, awesome, trustworthy word says this. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know what the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. <sighs> Nothing ever changes. Everything stays the same. The sun will set and the sun will rise. The weekend comes and the weekend goes. You make friends and you lose some friends. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're just a little stuck? You're in a, uh, a type of rut. You're on a never-ending merry-go-round where the horses, they go up and down. You're in constant motion, but they never end up taking you anywhere. This is the way the world looks to many ha who have traversed its ground. Maybe you're familiar with the work of the late, great Charles Schultz. This is one of my favorites here. Lucy, will you read this book to me? No. Oh, come on. No. Please. A man was born, he lived, and he died. The end. <laughs> what a fascinating account. It almost makes you wish you had known the fellow. Really? A man was born, he lived, 
and he died. Nothing like considering how short your life is to leave you feeling small and insignificant. Wondering whether or not there's any point to going through all the motions. Some of us are just starting out. The world is new. you got your whole life ahead of you. Nothing but opportunities and possibilities on the horizon. Others of us have been around for a little while. We've turned a corner. You've watched the halftime show, and now you're wondering what the second half is going to bring. Still others? Well, you're nearing the seventh inning. Maybe you're in the seventh inning. There's no doubt in your mind that there's more road in the rearview mirror than there is up ahead, and you're wondering what lies down that last little stretch. But as we look at Mark chapter 13, we're faced with the reality that no matter what age, no matter what stage we are in, there is a larger, bigger, infinitely more significant timeline that we find ourselves on. As he sat there on the hilltop with a few of his disciples overlooking the city, looking down at the temple that Wednesday evening before he would be crucified, Jesus made sure they and everyone who would read what they wrote down, that they and us understood that. That no matter how long it would be before he returned, they could not go back to their old lives. They couldn't go back to business as usual. They couldn't go back. Life was no longer about those natural ebbs and flows anymore, about those rhythms, those routines, and those repetitions. It was now about marching, marching to the end. Jesus didn't come to enhance our lives, did he? He came to change the course of our lives. You've been born, you live, and you die. That would no longer be the feudal march that you experience. It would be an ever-moving march now, a never-stopping, a perpetual march toward the day, the great day a day that has been known throughout the centuries as the day of the Lord, the day the king would return. The last couple weeks we heard him tell us of things that are to come. There are awesome things. There are terrible things. There are days of war. There are days of natural disaster, of betrayal, of suffering. There are days when people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, they will be increasingly resented and, and resisted and even hated. There are days of oppression. There are days of persecution. There are days in which the only sensible move is to flee for your lives. Contrary to what some people think, the world is not going to get better it's going to become more desperate, more dire, more dark, and it will culminate in a seven-year period of tribulation, of trouble and suffering, the second half of which, three and a half years, are known as the Great Tribulation. Are you excited? You should be. We should be, because after all this awful stuff takes place, the king returns. He's coming back, and the world will never, 
ever be the same again. The question I want to attempt to answer this morning is this. How should the nearness of the king's return, how should that impact his people? How should that impact us? What should it do to us? You're a kid, you're a youth, you're a teenager, you're a young adult, you're a newlywed, you're a parent, you're a midlifer, you're a retiree, you are a senior citizen. No matter where you are in life, you are a person living in a world that is not here by happenstance. Nor is it going to infinitely go on spinning and whirling through the universe. No, you are on a road trip toward a final destination. And if you're among those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, then that destination is awesome. It is very, very, very good. Let's talk about it, shall we? As the odometer of history keeps on rolling, how should that impact people who believe in Jesus? Three things I'd love for us to to get a hold of this morning. The first is this. The nearness of the king's return should fill his people with awe and wonder and longing. You remember that back when you were a kid? Awe and wonder. And longing. I can't wait for it. There are a lot of things to be impressed by in this world. If you're like me, there's a whole lot of new cars that are coming out, and you're getting very, very excited. But they're way overpriced, so you can't have any of them, so just forget about it. New technology impresses some of us. New movies, new forms of entertainment excite a lot of us. Some of us are impressed by the weather. About four years ago, California was slammed by these epic storms, just ferocious winds and truckloads of rain. And so my family and I, of course, we drove down to Dana Point Harbor to experience the full force of this. And I almost lost a leg trying to open the door because as quickly as I got it open, it snapped right back on me. When I finally managed to get out, I actually had to hide behind a tree to prevent myself, all 200 pounds or so of me, from being blown into the ocean. It was incredible. It was awesome. What Jesus is describing here puts all of that to shame. It's nothing like that. The most extreme thing that you have experienced, the most extreme thing that you have even heard about is nothing in comparison to what Jesus is talking about here. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The curtain closes on the tribulation with the lights going out. Jesus promised in verse 20, for the sake of the elect, this was a week or so ago, for the sake of the elect, he's cutting those days of judgment short. Now, if you are a student of Scripture, you may remember that God's judgment in Romans 1 is described as God letting humanity go and face the full fury of their own devices. Let's just refresh our memories here. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth and perpetuating lies. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 
in the timeless words of one of the greats, morons. <laughs> Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, cre- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What person who has any regard for God's word and awareness of what is going on in our world cannot see that the many freedoms that are now being celebrated in our world are indicators of God's judgment. And yet, as extreme as things are getting, here in Mark 13, Jesus is describing an epic new release of God's judgment. This is no longer the passive kind of judgment in which God lets people go their merry way. What Jesus describes in Mark is the beginnings of active judgment. You and I have got to realize that the only reason that the universe is not caving in on itself as a result of human rebellion is the powerful and determined staying hand of God. Remember 2 Peter? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So He's currently, even at this moment that we are passing through right now, holding back the full unleashing of active judgment so that more and more people might come to repent and trust in Jesus. Could it be that you are one of those people that he's waiting for? Peter goes on. But the day of the Lord, that's what we're talking about, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's just what Jesus is describing here in Mark 13. The great tribulation will end with the lights going out. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, it says. Then, Jesus says, and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is the unthinkable, isn't it? I've watched the movies where the asteroid is coming, right? And everyone freaks out. And this is going to be a cataclysmic, oh, I can't remember what they call it, but it, it's a, it is extinction-level event is going to happen. And we all go, oh my gosh, what if that happened to our world? This is on a totally different scale here, a totally different level here. How steady and sure is the sunrise. Don't, don't they say, as sure as the sun will rise? Because it always happens. It just happens over and over and over again. We just expect it's always going to happen. How fixed 
in place, or at least in their orbits, do we consider the massive bodies that are spinning around in our solar system? What kind of force, what kind of power would, would have to pull those bodies out of orbit? The same force that's right now holding it all together. <laughs> Hebrews 1.3, He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Yeah, but this is crazy talk, Jesus, is it? The Bible thoroughly supports this, these events. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Joel chapter 2 verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Verse 30 of chapter 2 of Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But the light's going out. And these cosmic events that are throwing off gravitational pulls in our solar system, they will be nothing compared to the brilliance of what comes next. Verse 26 of Mark 13, Jesus says, And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Do you remember how Jesus came the first time? It wasn't super spectacular. It wasn't super glorious. Jesus came as a little, a little helpless baby. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. That's what Philippians 2.7 tells us. But when he comes again, it will be as the victorious, conquering king. Daniel describes it this way, 7.13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he came humble on the back of, of a colt, of a donkey. When he returns, he'll be seated on the back of a stallion, Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire, 
And on his head are many diadems. There are jewels all over the crown. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. This will be a moment of terror for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ, but of awesome wonder for those who have. Verse 27, Mark 13 says this, Jesus says, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. What a great moment that will be. For those who have been scattered around the planet, who have been hated, who have been ridiculed, who have been called foolish and ignorant, who have suffered and have been persecuted, have persevered, endured, faithfully, courageously proclaimed the name of Jesus, this will be the moment that they've long waited for, the moment when the king calls them to himself. The nearness of the king's return should fill his people with awe and wonder and longing. As you go through your day-to-day routine, doing business as usual, enduring, persevering, continuing to press on, dealing with all sorts of weird and complicated and things you disagree with that are going on in the world, Do you ever stop to consider what lies ahead of you on your journey? Do we daydream about it? Are you longing for it? People who belong to Jesus should be filled with awe, wonder, and longing for his return as the day draws near. Secondly, the nearness of the king's return should strengthen his people's confidence. Once again, Jesus points to fig trees here. And I will not repeat the personal feelings I have for figs. Uh, I don't like them. But in the surrounding area that Jesus was ministering, there were fig trees. And Jesus said, just like you know that summer is near, when you see a fig tree and it's pushing out its leaves, you will know that when you see these things that that I'm describing here, that my return is right around the corner. In fact, at the very gates, he says, and that's not to say that there are literal gates that he is hiding behind, waiting behind, but it's like a person who's at your door or who are at a city gate, and they're just about to step inside. So Jesus will be on the verge of returning. Now, when we were looking at verses 
3 to 13, we noted that things like wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and hatred and the threat of death were like the birth pains on the way to the end. They remind us that the end is coming. It's on the way, but it's, it's not here yet. It's probably not tomorrow. And then when you see the abomination of desolation sit himself down in the temple, well, you'll, you'll know that there's about seven years or so left till Christ's return. But when you see the sky go dark and the planets begin to fall out of orbit, that's when you'll know it's go time. <laughs> Verse 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, the generation that sees this time of tribulation arrive will know that they're going to have a front row seat to the arrival of their glorious king. So keep your eyes open. Stay awake. Really? I mean, really, Jesus. It seems like this has been taking forever. It's been so long and we just keep enduring. How many church events do we have to set up for? How much longer do I have to endure with these people? Are you, are you coming back? Really? Is it going to happen? How do we know that what you're saying is actually going to happen? And that's where he says, heaven and earth will pass away. The things that you thought were constant, unchanging, unmoving, they're always there. They'll pass away. <laughs> not my words. But my words will not pass away, he says. People are running around, and they're taking their cans, and they're taking their plastic bottles, and they're throwing them in the appropriate bins, God bless them, and they're buying up cars that they think are contributing or contributing less to the damage that's going on in our world. They're now, um, they're now I don't have my phone with me, they're, they're pulling out their phones, they're actually texting to support the cause, to fight the war against climate change. They are doing all of these different things to save the planet. Now, I'm not necessarily against that, but you've got to realize this thing is not going to be here forever. What kind of investment are we making here? I'm not suggesting that you go out and uh, start a dumpster fire or go uh, dump all your used motor oil into the harbor. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting you get all your trash, trash and just collect it in your backyard and light it on fire. I'm not suggesting any of that, but I think it's fair to realize that this planet's days are numbered. It's numbered. It's not going to be here forever. We idolize this thing. It's great. It's good. It's going to fall apart. In fact, more than fall apart, it's because it burned up, exploded. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to happen. The day is coming when it will no longer be. Perhaps our time and our money could be better used elsewhere. Maybe for something that's going to last a little bit longer. Remember that there is something that will last forever. It's Jesus' words. As the day draws near, you and I begin to see more and more signs of nearness. Let that be a reminder to you that his words are here to stay. And what he said will be 
They will be. It's coming. God's got the day on his calendar, and it's getting bumped for nothing. It's going to happen exactly when he says it will happen. And as you and I begin to see those signs signaling Christ's return, it's near. Our trust and our hope and our faith should solidify, just like concrete drawing solidifies. It's rock solid. Well, everyone else throws their hands up in the air and say, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Those who trust in Jesus throw their hands up in the air and they say, you were right. Of course you were right. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The nearness of Christ's return should strengthen his people's confidence. Finally, the nearness of the king's return should lead his people, this is my eloquence here, lead his people to get themselves ready. (laughs) It's so simple, and yet it's so tremendously impactful to our daily lives. As many and as clear as the signs may be, no one but God knows the exact day, right? But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, of course, someone is going to say, so you're saying that not even Jesus knew the time. No, I am not saying that. Jesus said that. And that, all that simply indicates is that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, while he was here during his first coming, took upon himself certain restraints. And that's not to say that he ceased becoming fully God in any way, shape, or form, but because he was also fully human, and this hypostatic union thing's going on, his humanity had limits. And I know that this is difficult to understand. How can he be fully God and know everything there is to know and yet be fully human at the same time and not know certain things at the same time? This just does not compute to our puny brains and they explode on us. But the reality is, before he rose from the grave... As the glorified Savior, he could honestly say that his humanity, in fact, he says, the Son, Son of Man, did not know the time of his return. Okay, well, so what to us? Well, I think as a sub-point, that should at least remind us that if the Son of Man didn't know the day or the hour, then we haven't got a prayer figure in this thing out. I haven't got a prayer, so why are we even trying? But we should be watching. So what? So because you don't know the date or the time of his return, you can't spell it out. I, I, I love planning things. I love knowing that that Bethany Country Fair, well, it's several weeks out, and, and there are things that we need to do, but not today. We can do them tomorrow. Or, or Christmas is coming. You know I don't have the Christmas series planned yet? Sorry, I, I don't. Because it's coming, and I know when it's coming, and I have a certain date planned out where I'm going to plan and prepare for that. So if I knew when the second coming was going to happen, well, then I could just plan out my calendar. Today, I'm going to the beach. Today, I'm going to the lake. Today, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to do this. I'm going to a ball game. I'm doing whatever. I'll worry about that tomorrow. No, we don't know the day or the hour. It's coming whenever God says it's coming. So stay alert. 
be awake. Be ready. Make sure that you don't dawdle about. <laughs> Make sure that you're busying yourself with the business that Jesus has allotted for his people. He said in verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is a perfect picture, and of course it would be because Jesus gave it. I can't think of a better one. The masters left the house to be cared for by his servants. They don't know when he's coming back, so they better not sleep on the job. They better not let him return to find a mess here. Keep the lawn mowed for crying out loud. Dust the bookshelves. Freshen up the paint. Clear the cobwebs out of the corners. Now, Jesus doesn't flesh out uh, all of this illustration for us here, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to draw some application. What is the house that Christ's people are called to care for while he's away? Jesus called himself the cornerstone just a, a chapter ago in chapter 12. That was like months ago for us. 1 Peter 2.5, we read this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's Jesus. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so there is a house that those who have placed their trust in Jesus have been made a part of and they've been called to care for it, and it's called the church. Not the building, even though we do have to care for this thing. It's expensive, by the way. Not the building, but the people. And that can be even harder to care for, right? It's not easy caring for each other. It's as people. We care for God's people as we point each other to the truth of God's word. Romans 15, 14. We care for God's people as we live at peace with one another. Mark 9, 50. We care for God's people by refusing to pass judgment on one another, Romans 14, 13. When we serve one another, Galatians 5, 13. When we patiently love one another, Ephesians 4, 2. Show kindness and compassion to one another, Ephesians 4, 32. Consistently and faithfully meet together, something that we have to do from this day forward. Hebrews 10.25, spur each other on toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. We could go on and on and on. There's some 60 or whatever one another's in Scripture. Pastor Tim read that for us several weeks ago. It can be so easy for us to disconnect, can't it? To chill out. And let life become consumed with all sorts of things that have no lasting 
value. Do we need to spell those out? I don't think we do. We all know what they are. We all know what they are specifically for us. I think the important thing for us here is to be constantly asking ourselves, am I ready for the king's return? Am I getting my family and my friends, my neighbors, and those who are members of my church, am I getting them ready? Or have I lost sight of the fact that with each passing moment, I'm one step closer to the master's return? We're closer now than we were just a moment ago. <laughs> closer. Have I gotten lazy? Am I falling asleep? A man was born, he lived, and he died. And that may be the way that some look at life, but it's not the way that those whose king is returning should look at it. Are you awaiting the return of your king? Maybe you're at a place where you haven't yet come to know that king. You've been making your way through life. You've been doing your own thing. You've been riding the ups and downs of the merry-go-round, trying to do your mo the best to make the most out of the ride. It's one way to do it. I wouldn't recommend it. Because just to, just to ride the ride is to face the inevitable reality that one day... At one moment, the ride comes to an end. And if that was all there is to it, well, that wouldn't be so bad. But the Bible tells us that the end is not the end. In fact, to come to the end of your life, or to the end of time for that matter, and not have a relationship with God that has been made right it's to find yourself in the worst way that a person could be. It's to find yourself at the beginning of an eternity of punishment. The Bible tells us that we've all got a problem. It's called sin. And it's the way that each and every one of us have turned our back on God. We've done what was right in our own eyes, and we haven't lived in obedience to Him. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the way it works. And for that, we deserve to be alienated from God and all that is good for all eternity, for forever. For that, we're headed for judgment. It's on the way. It's coming near and nearer with each passing moment. Of course, none of us think that we deserve judgment, right? None of us. In fact, we've convinced ourselves we're a whole lot better than those other people out there. I mean, we try to do the right thing, at least some of the time. We try to be kind to others, good to our families, at least good to those who seem to be doing good to us. We try to do meaningful things with our lives and live the best that we can. But the Bible tells us that none of those good things that we try to do are actually truly good and that's because you can't do a truly good thing in God's eyes when you haven't been made right with God to begin with. A wanted criminal can't make up for the crime that he's committed by going out there and doing some good things for people or helping rescue a dog that's been hit by a car. It doesn't count for anything. He's still wanted. 
You can't make up for your sin by doing good things. You can't pay for your own sin and have it go away. All you can do is turn to Jesus and admit that you're a sinner and turn from that old life of rebellion and trust in what he did on the cross to pay for every single one of your sins. And that, my friends, is the only way that anyone can be made right with God, can be brought into his family and go from fearing his return to longing for his return. And if you haven't done that, and you haven't placed your trust yet in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me be so bold as to just say, you need to do that right now. Because the clock is ticking, and time is wasting. And at some point, either your time is going to come, or Christ's time is going to come. And either way, if you haven't crossed the line and made Jesus your king, then you're in a world of hurt with no turning around. The time to trust Jesus is right now. And for those of us who have come to trust Jesus as our king, are we ready for his return? The nearness of the king's return, it should fill his people with awe with wonder, with longing. Are you longing for that more than your next vacation? More than next Friday? More than when the kids move out of the house? <laughs> or when they come to visit next time? Are you longing for his return? The nearness of the king's return, it should strengthen our confidence in him, rock solid, unmoved, Jesus' words are true and reliable. And that they should lead us to get ready. And when we see each other, that should be our focus. Our, we're getting each other ready. We're getting each other excited. This person is down over here. This person is grieving over here. Remember the hope you have in Jesus. This person is distracted by their 401k or by their investments. Are you looking to this? Because this, that's not your hope. This is your hope. Are we getting each other ready? That's what we do together when we come together as a church, right? Let's be waiting. Let's be trusting. Let's be preparing because the time for our king's return is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you and we love the fact that you have not left us here. You have not abandoned your people you are coming again. And that you are not slow as some consider slowness, Lord. You are patient and you are drawing others into our family. Lord, I pray that even this morning that you would draw more into our family here. Not so that we could become some cool megachurch or anything like that, Lord, but so that more can rejoice with us and sing at the top of our lungs and put aside all of our little frustrations and complaints and just be gathered together and in awe of our great God. We love you. We thank you. Strengthen your people, I pray. Build us up. Use us for your glory and the good of others. And pray all these things in the mighty and strong and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.